All right, well, good morning. Welcome to week six of our series through systematic theology. This morning, we're moving from the doctrine of uh, scripture, bibliology, into a new topic. So what I'll be teaching on today, this is an introduction to the theology of God the Father known as theology proper, the doctrine of God the Father known as theology proper. So again, for those of you that might be joining us for the first time, when we talk about systematic theology, systematic theology seeks to answer the question, what does the Bible say in its entirety on a particular topic or theme? And today's topic will be kind of a subcategory of the doctrine of God the Father, and that is his existence. There are many, many other topics within theology proper. For example, you'll see, I think next week, Kerry might be teaching on his attributes. There's also the triune nature of God, the Trinity, uh, the problem of the existence of evil, God's decrees, God's creation, and God's upholding uh, everything that was made outside of himself. We'll cover these over the next few weeks as we work through theology proper. Over the past five weeks, most of you have been here. We stopped last week and did a Q&A, but between Stephen and Carrie and J.D., they've done a wonderful job of establishing that the Bible is the infallible, inerrant, inspired Word of God. And we also learned that it is clear, it is sufficient for salvation, and most of all, and that's what we're going to focus on today, it is authoritative over all other authorities, all other sources of information. What is the implication of that? The implication is that Scripture is the foundation for human knowledge about God, and it's the foundation for human knowledge about anything in its relation to God. So our focus now moves to the doctrine of God and the Father, the doctrine of God the Father, and specifically His existence. Um, If you'll join me in a quick word of prayer, let's go to God and ask Him to bless our lesson. Heavenly Father, I am inadequate to teach about you. Lord, please bless the hearing of your word. Bless this lesson that we might understand you more truly and worship you more rightly. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So uh, my primary source for this lesson, all of our primary source is uh, Biblical Doctrine by John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew, standing on the shoulders of giants here. These men uphold the foundation of Scripture as the rule by which we understand God, and so we're relying heavily on them. I also gained some insights from Wayne Grudem's Bible Doctrine, and thanks to Keith Staples. Thank you, Keith, for introducing me to Truth We Confess by R.C. Sproul. So uh, that's a a wonderful book as well. Again, today we're going to focus on the Bible's teaching about God's existence, and we're going to begin with a very basic question. How can we know that God exists. How can we know that God exists? This is a question that has gained a lot of attention in the world of apologetics. For those of you that aren't familiar with apologetics, it's not apologizing for your faith. Apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to give a defense. Um, My emphasis today is not to offer an extensive review of every apologetic argument known to man on the existence of God. That would be more appropriate for a class on maybe philosophy or on apologetics. What I hope to accomplish today, again, is to just provide an introduction to the evidence for God's existence. And that should help us lay a foundation for future weeks as we begin to talk about God's character. Okay. Now, as we seek to understand how can we know God exists, there's also a companion question that we'll try to answer 
since God exists, can we truly know him? Is he knowable? So what we're going to do is we're going to begin with Scripture and see what it says about God's existence. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, the very first words in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. So the Bible assumes that he exists, that he existed before the beginning of all things outside of himself and that there is only one God. In the beginning, God. When we talk about theology proper, like any other area of systematic theology, it is only properly derived from God's own testimony in his inspired, inerrant word, which we know as the Bible. That is where theology proper is properly derived from. Our concept of God does not come from below, as James chapter 3 said. It doesn't come from fallible human reasoning. It comes from above. We all know that human reasoning is finite, corrupted by sin. And if we just rely on our human reason, I hope you'll see today in our lesson that human reason uh, is very fallible and never fully able to come to an accurate understanding of God because he is infinite and holy. And we most certainly are not. I am very aware that I most certainly am not as I stand here. So this is very important, the statement I'm going to make. Proof of God's existence must come first and foremost from God's testimony about himself. He has provided irrefutable proofs for his existence in the Bible. God cannot be excluded from testifying about himself. And that's an amazing fact. I myself am an evidentialist. I always love to know why I believe what I believe. I'm fascinated by some of the arguments that I'll present to you. But when you think about who God is and the fact that he's revealed himself to us in his word, this makes sense. We cannot exclude God's own testimony about himself. That should be the primary source of our understanding about him. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a presuppositional approach to this discussion, which means that we are going to presuppose the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture. So I'm not going to prove, I'm not going to attempt to prove the existence of God through fallible human reasoning, although we will go through, through some of the natural proofs. Instead, I'm going to presume the God of the Bible exists, and I'm going to attempt to lay down uh, what scripture itself teaches us about God. And we've mentioned uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 many times. This is a key scripture. All scripture is inspired by God. I like the version that says breathed out by God. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And if we're looking for evidence that's pure and that transcends the limitations of human intellectual finiteness, then the first and really the only thing as Christians we need to look at is the Bible. Now, having said that, you're saying, wait, Scott, that's not the only way he's revealed himself to us, and you would be correct. We all understand that God has revealed himself in things outside of Scripture. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 1, many of you have read through this many times, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The world is without excuse because God has revealed himself 
not only in Scripture, but outside of Scripture. We do have evidences for the existence of God from outside of Scripture. However, let me reiterate this point. Uh, my coach always said, repetition is a facet of learning. If you hear this more than once, this is a good thing. Every one of the arguments or evidences from the natural realm, from God's created realm, must be evaluated and accepted only as they align with Scripture, what God has testified about himself. After all, these are his words, his testimony about himself. So now what we're going to do is we are going to turn to God's word to hear just a few examples. This, we don't have time in our lesson this morning to go through all of them, but this should suffice. You'll see that scripture asserts the existence of the only true God. Let's look at John 17, 3, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Like I mentioned a few minutes ago, Genesis 1, 1 begins with the, the foundational presupposition that God existed in the beginning. And so what that means is that every statement that comes from the Bible about God's nature and about his actions is proof from him of, exist, of his existence. So let's keep that in mind as we go through these scripture. And by the way, scripture reveals, make, make no mistake about it, um, God reveals in his word that it is a requirement that anyone who wants to have a relationship with him must first believe that he exists. And we find this in Hebrews 11, verse 6. Well, it's not coming up here. Okay, we'll go with that. Hebrews 11, verse 6 says, and this is eternal life, that they know you the only, we already saw that. Now, Hebrews 11, 6 doesn't come up, so I'll just read it. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. According to the Bible, anyone that doesn't believe in God is also wicked. Uh, now it's showing up. Psalm 10, 4 says, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. So if you don't believe in God, you are wicked. Scripture also plainly says that if you don't believe in God, you're a fool. Psalm 10.4. Oh, we just read that one. Sorry. Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 53 echoes the same sentiment. We also learn from God's word that he is eternal. And as Kerry Wilson, I think Kerry is talking about his attributes next week. But we'll touch on this just a little bit. God is without beginning, and he's without ending. In the Bible, God is called the eternal God. We find that in Deuteronomy 33, 27. Psalm 90, verse 2 says that God existed eternally in the present before the world was created. It says this, before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In Isaiah 41, 4, God declares, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Isaiah adds this in chapter 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And then this from Isaiah 57, 15, that affirms that God is the one who inhabits eternity. And we also have proof of God's existence from his statements that he simply is. We'll look at some of those. And you'll see that his existence, is, as we learn from Scripture, his existence is completely independent of anything else outside of himself. Exodus 3, verse 4, 
God told Moses the name by which Israel was to know him. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. So God is. And he depends on nothing and no one for his existence. And this is what he inspired the Apostle Paul to write in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. If we had more time, we could certainly go through many, many more scriptural passages uh, that, that give us understanding about God's being and about his works. If we had time for that, it would certainly give us more than ample sufficient evidence for his existence, but I think these verses will suffice. God has affirmed his own existence through the primary, foundational, and foremost source of proof by which believers must believe that he does exist in his revealed word. So this should answer the question, does God exist? Well, he's told us he does. He says, I am. Now let's shift our focus to the second question. We've answered the question, does God exist? What about can we be in relationship with this God? Can we know him personally? And we're going to talk about the knowability of God. The knowability of God. And this will lead us to what scripture will also confirm is that he is incomprehensible. Incomprehensible. We can know him, but not exhaustively. Uh, in classical terminology, God is truly knowable, but not exhaustively comprehensible. So scripture affirms that God can be known, but he can, and he can be known in a personal relationship. How do we know this? If you remember back in Genesis, God walked in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. They were in relationship. They had conversations with him. God spoke to uh, Moses through the burning bush. And as we've been uh, learning uh, through our sermon series, he spoke with Moses. He actually gave him the law on Mount Sinai. So again, let me refer back to John 17, 3. These are the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples, by the way. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. More from the New Testament. Colossians 2, 9, we read that Jesus himself is the incarnation of God, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And in Matthew 1, 23, you remember the, uh, the angel citing the prophet speaks to Mary and says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 1 Corinthians 3.16 informs us, this is pretty cool as we gather here today, God indwells the church. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? John 14.23 says that he dwells within the believers. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. James 2.23 says he's the friend of believers. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. So according to Scripture, God can be known truly. So again, this should answer the question about the knowability of God. But although God can be known truly, Scripture testifies unmistakably 
to the fact that God cannot be fully known to humans. According to 1 Corinthians 2.11, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We also learn in Psalm 145.3 that God cannot be fully searched out. It says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. And we see the same phrasing in Isaiah 40, verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Um, here's another Old Testament uh, expression of God's incomprehensibility from the book of Job, chapter 37, verse 5. He does great things that we cannot comprehend have this from Psalm 147, verse 5. It says that God's understanding is beyond measure. Let's look at this verse in Isaiah 55, 9. This highlights how God compares the superiority of his thoughts to the inferiority of our thoughts. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And Paul said it another way. This is one of my favorite passages in Romans 11. Verses 33 and 34, where Paul breaks out and prays for an incomprehensible God. Oh, the depths, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Here's the point. We may know something about God's love and his power in his wisdom, but we can never fully incomprehensibly know his love. We can never fully incomprehensibly, uh, exhaustively rather, understand his power. We can never fully and, and exhaustively understand his wisdom, and so on and so forth. We can only say what David said, Psalm 139.6, I love this, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So, Having gone through all those scriptural proofs, a very quick overview in uh, less than about 20 minutes, let's turn to the natural proofs. We've already acknowledged, when we, we mentioned Romans 1, that God has revealed himself to all mankind in the things that have been made in the created realm. So, uh, I should point out as we go to what I'm going to call the natural proofs, um, we, we will be looking at a number of arguments. And again, this is not a course in apologetics. We're going to go through these. But we should mention that uh, when we talk about general revelation or the natural world, that includes man. So some of these arguments emanate from man who is in the created realm, our logic, our thinking. Um, so all these natural proofs, some emanate from the material world. Uh, but the goal here, again, is to anchor our knowledge of God, I'm reiterating this a third time, to anchor our knowledge of God in Scripture and to relegate, this is a very important point, to relegate all other arguments and all other evidences, as it's depicted here in the slide, to a secondary status. And I believe Kerry introduced this topic of what we know as special revelation. Special revelation is divine. It is God's revealed world and it is sufficient for salvation. It is special because it is sufficient for salvation. It reveals God's plan for salvation. And it's special in that it is revealed and understood by the believers. Contrast that with general revelation, which is divine. It is God revealed through the created realm that is insufficient 
for salvation. It is general in the fact that God has revealed it to the entire world, but it does not reveal his way of salvation. It reveals just enough of the knowledge of God to condemn the world and to render all of us without excuse. And Scripture, uh, scripture does speak to the divine nature of general revelation. This is in Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So keep in mind, because general revelation is insufficient to save, this is a very important point. It is never, it should never, in, in the hands of a believer, be used independent of Scripture. Because the Bible shows that left to his own thinking, and we'll talk about this as I go through some of the natural proofs, left to his own thinking, man can and will corrupt and misinterpret what God has revealed through general revelation. We've seen many, many examples of this. So when we look at these natural proofs, I'm going to go through some of them, we need to discern whether these arguments actually prove the God of the Bible, the triune God of the Bible. It's very important. We need to understand what purpose these natural proofs serve in ministry This is a very important distinction. Do these positions reveal a means of salvation? Or do they merely take someone who's an atheist to a position where they believe in some infinite higher power? Maybe a God who's less than involved, who just kind of kicked things off and sits back and is not personal. Uh, That's a position known as deism. Does it make someone a deist? Is that sufficient for salvation? Or do these arguments make someone a theist? Where they believe in a single powerful all-creator God, but is no different than the God of the the Muslims or the non-saved Jews. These are important things we need to ask ourselves. What do they do? Do these proofs that I'm going to go through in the next 20 minutes or so, do they, standing on their own merit, advance the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or do they merely make intellectual arguments that are insufficient to save? These are very important things we must consider today. So we're going to take a quick look at some of the natural proofs for the existence of God. And we'll see that by themselves they do indeed not, I'll go ahead and spill the beans now, they do not necessarily prove the triune God of the Bible. In fact, I'm going to talk about a lot of the people throughout history that have argued some of these arguments. And many of them were pagan philosophers like Aristotle or Plato. Let's begin with the ontological argument, the ontological argument. This stems from the Greek word onto, which means being, so this is the study of being. The ontological argument deals with the reality of being. This is the ontological argument for the existence of God that states that God's existence is proved by man's thought that God exists as the perfect being. And if there are any philosophy professors in here, Uh, They could say, that's way too simplified, Scott. So we're going to keep this very simple. We don't have hours to go through this. But you might see from the outset some problems inherent with this. Again, God's existence is proved by man's thought that God exists as the perfect being. This is a philosophical argument that became popular back in the 11th century. It was conceived by a Roman Catholic priest named St. Anselm of Canterbury. That's in southeast England. And... Sometimes you'll hear this argument referred to as Anselm's argument or Anselm's cosmological argument. And he felt, Anselm did, that this argument was a proof for God's existence. And like I mentioned earlier, this is an argument that comes 
directly from man's idea to the conclusion about his being and his necessary existence. So even though it doesn't, isn't derived from something that's material in the created realm, it does come from man. So it's, we're, we're including it in the natural proofs. Again, the ontological argument argues that God's existence is proved by man's thought that God exists as the perfect being. For Anselm, God is a being which nothing greater can even be thought of. His argument went something like this. The existence of a greatest possible being is necessary, and he is God. Therefore, God exists. Here's another way to state the argument. I know I'm seeing some furrowed brows. Yeah. I know sometimes when I, I philosophy books, I just picture a man in a rowboat in the middle of a lake with one oar going in circles. It's another way to phrase the argument. God is the greatest thing we can think of. Things can exist in our imaginations, or they can also exist in reality. And if we can conceive of a perfect God based on our own finite limitations and ability to imagine, therefore he must exist. And if he exists in our imaginations, he must be even better in reality. So again, we can all see some, some flaws in this, in this logic. And skeptics rightly note that if this were true, we could just merely define things into existence like, and I can imagine the, the perfect desert island with the perfect beach, the perfect waters, fish and food and fruit, everything abounds, jumps onto my plate. I never have to work. I've got the perfect spouse, and it's always the perfect temperature. And there's a ski slope, a 10-minute walk up the mountain. And so if I can imagine that, oh, surely it must exist. So we can't merely define things into existence, which is kind of what left to itself Anselm, Anselm's argument argues. So forms of this argument, by the way, uh, have been advanced by decidedly non-Christian thinkers. Um, Descartes, many of you are familiar with these names, Descartes, Spinoza, von Leibniz, Hegel, Unfortunately, the ontological argument did not lead them to the God of the Bible. Let's go to another natural proof. I, I actually love this when I've spent a lot of time listening to the cosmological argument. This argues from the created realm to an uncaused first cause for all of the universe. It's known as the cosmological argument. Of course, that ultimate first cause is God. Here's how the argument goes. We live in a cause and effect universe. So anything that has a beginning has to have a cause. This is, this is what follows from what we know as the law of causality. Anything that has a beginning has to have a cause. And since we know that the universe had a beginning, so the argument goes, since we know that the universe had a beginning, it had to have a cause, and that would necessarily be God. Again, with, with the understanding of Scripture and in, in utilizing Scripture as the foundation, we know this to be true. But by itself, let's see if this argument really uh, advances the gospel. Again, I, I've, I've loved these arguments. Let me, let me say that. But we have to be careful with this argument because one of the first, earliest proponents of this argument was a Muslim philosopher named al-Ghazali. And he used the form of the cosmological argument to argue for Allah. So again, that's a theistic position. Maybe it'll help move someone from atheism, but it doesn't necessarily convict them of the God, the triune God of the scripture. St. Thomas Aquinas also uh, really popularized this argument in the 13th century. St. Thomas Aquinas, a Roman Catholic priest. I actually have a buddy. I used to spend a lot of time with this guy. He was the president of the, the KU Agnostic and Atheist Society. Brilliant mind. 
He had an undergraduate in math mathematics, computer science, um, and he has now finished his doctoral degree in astrophysics. When he was 16, he was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. He began doubting the existence of God. So his local uh, Catholic priest somewhere in Kansas City said, you need to read um, St. Thomas Aquinas. He's got a number of arguments for the existence of God, including the cosmological argument. Well, my friend read through those. He remains unconvinced. Today, he is an avowed atheist. So in and of itself, Anselm's argument, the cosmological argument, rather, um, by St. Thomas Aquinas, doesn't always convict. Also, we mentioned von Leibniz, who argued the ontological argument. He also argued a form of the cosmological argument. Von Leibniz was also a brilliant mind. He was an 18th century mathematician and enlightenment philosopher. He never came to a true position of Christianity. Now, critics of this cosmological argument point out that the assumption that God created everything is problematic because it doesn't answer the question, so say the critics, of how God came to be. They argue that if everything has a cause, then what caused God to come into existence? And this leads to a more current version of the cosmological argument, and I've heard this argued by Christian apologists that I've benefited from, William Lane Craig, Frank Turek, one of my favorite guys, J.P. Moreland, and they tweak this cosmological argument. It's now called the Kalam cosmological argument. Here's how it goes. Instead of saying that everything has a cause, it says that everything that begins to exist has a cause. And since God is eternal, meaning he has always existed, he never began and therefore he is exempt from the law of causality. So that should solve the problem, right? Unfortunately, and, I, and again, I love these arguments. I don't want to uh, bash them, but they, these arguments left to themselves without the basis of Scripture as the primary authoritative means by which we know the God of the Bible, they do not confirm the deity necessarily responsible for the beginning of it all. So it doesn't matter whether it's the uh, cosmological argument that St. Thomas Aquinas argued or the modern Kalam cosmological argument, they fall short. And let me, let me mention too, like I said, man left to his own uh, limited finite, finite intellectual uh, reasoning ability can and always will corrupt what God has revealed in nature. And I'll tell you this, unfortunately, um, the men that I mentioned accept within their arguments Big Bang Theory. William Lane Craig has come out in print now as a theistic evolutionist. And so what happens here, I want to make a point here, why these things by themselves without the boundaries of Scripture can lead to um, incorrect information. Anytime you adopt like Big Bang, cosmological, geological evolution, and you adopt and you adapt, J.D. talked about syncretism, to your philosophies, the, the secular world is going to figure that out. See, it used to be that the, these guys would say, I believe in the Big Bang, the secular world believes in the Big Bang. There was a Big Bang, therefore there had to be a Big Banger. Well, guess what? When you, Oz Guinness said that when you adopt the most modern re recent scientific theory, that means that the next one that comes along is going to knock that one off, put it on the bookshelf where it will gather dust, and you're going to have to readapt your interpretation of Scripture, and that is exactly what is happening. Now, they say, and this figures into the Kalam cosmological argument, they're saying, wait a second, we're not saying that this universe is the only one that's ever existed. We're saying maybe this universe had a beginning, but guess what? Modern theory says that there's an eternal 
Big Bang, where the current universe will contract, it will become a singularity, it will have a quantum fluctuation, inflation, expansion, contraction, singularity, quantum fluctuation, etc., etc. So they are now getting around the Kalam cosmological argument saying there is an eternal universe. It has no beginning. The only thing that is eternal is the universe. And you've all heard of the multiverse theory. This is not the only universe, so they say. So left to ourselves, if we just come up with our own logical reasoning, we can and will misinterpret God's revelation. So we have to keep within the boundaries of Scripture because when we do that, we can make a very powerful argument. This argument by itself fails to prove the, the God of the Bible. Let's move to another argument. I love this. The teleological argument. This is the argument from design. Um, many of you know this as the intelligent design movement. This argument holds that the complex order, design, purpose, and intelligence that we find throughout the universe is the work of an intelligent, purposeful designer who is God. And I love these arguments. For example, you could argue to an atheist, if you look at this building and the structure, you know that this building did not create itself. There was an architect. Can we agree to that? Likewise, if we look at the immensity, the immeasurability, the complexity, the, the grand design and beauty, even the existence of information in the world, the created realm, information, the laws of information state that information in and of itself cannot be derived from the material world. It exists in and of itself and it can only be understood from an intelligent mind and perceived by an intelligent mind. All of these things speak to an intelligent mind who created all of it. I love these arguments. However, there is a fallacy within this argument. If, if you read the primary textbook by the intelligent design movement, and again, if used with scripture, this is a powerful argument. We understand the truth of it inherently. But I've read the book, uh, Mere Creation, by William Dembski and others. They specifically say that if you are to use this argument, if you're going to be a true intelligent design uh, proponent, then you must argue it strictly on the grounds of science and leave the Bible out of it in so many words. I almost couldn't believe it when I read this book. In other words, if you ruin the argument by mentioning God or scripture or religion, you've ruined the argument. So what it does inherently is it elevates science, man's logic and reason, to a, a prime authoritative argument for a God. And not only does it subjugate uh, special revelation to a position of secondary status, it says leave it out of here. So this argument is a, the fallacy of neutrality. They're saying leave the Bible out of it, but there's no neutral position on this. So again, wonderful argument. I love it. I benefited from it. I love the men that argue this. Um, but it does not specifically lead to the God of the Bible. In fact, um, they even say this in the book, we welcome Christians, theists, deists, even evolutionary, um, theistic evolutionists. It does not necessarily lead to the Bible, um, the God of the Bible. It's very, it's secular. You could argue that their, their means for arguing the teleological design is secular in nature. So let that be a, a warning. Another troubling fact is that Plato and Aristotle, Immanuel Kant, they argued this, never brought them to the God of the Bible. Let's move to another argument. This is known as the moral argument. It says that because man has a conscience, moral values, and the fear of death within him, these things imply a moral being who created and maintains the moral order of the world. Aquinas also used this argument 
says that these things must come from an ultimately perfect being because there are attributes that we share with God. I wouldn't call them perfections, like we'd call God's attributes perfections, but we do have some things that emanate from a perfect God, and he is the cause of all these characteristics, whether it's goodness or truth or a love of justice. And there is some scriptural preference. So let me, let me show you how you can buttress an argument like this. Um, I'll just read it. Romans 2, verses 14 and 15, you'll see that this argument does have uh, a, some scriptural basis if used in concordance with scripture. For when Gentiles, this is Romans chapter 2, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So that's an example of how maybe the moral argument has some standing when used in, in, concord, in accordance with Scripture, can be very powerful. But um, Immanuel Kant, I think I've mentioned him, he was an Enlightenment philosopher, decidedly non-Christian. He also asserted a form of this moral argument, and he, was, uh, he did not believe in the triune God of the Bible or the Incarnation. There's also a couple other arguments, the universality of religion argument, the progress of humanity argument. We don't have time to go through those. But what can we say? How do we assess these arguments? They all represent a theology based on man's reason, and they don't necessarily lead to the triune God of the Bible. I think I've said that uh, a half a dozen times at least, as evidenced by the many names that we mentioned that have made these arguments and who never came to salvation or a knowledge of saving faith in Christ. Now, let me say this, though. Each of them can be used if they're considered in concert with biblical presuppositions, like, for example, that the God of the Bible exists, that he is one, that he existed in eternality, that he is a triune God, powerful over all creation. Remember, because man's depravity is total, our faculty of reasoning is corrupted by sin, and so this is why we can't rely solely on the natural proofs as evidence for the existence of God. Romans 10, 14 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And this is very important. I've, I've kind of had to learn this the hard way. Non-believers don't need more evidence. They don't need more evidence. What they need is the miracle of regeneration, which only comes through the preaching of the gospel and man's conviction of his own sin and the need for a savior left to themselves. Again, these natural arguments, they have the power to convict man that there is a God, but they don't convict him of his need for a savior. The only way that happens is when the gospel is proclaimed and man is given a new heart through faith by the Holy Spirit through the word of God. So having said all this, I don't want anybody to come away from this lesson thinking that I'm saying the natural proofs are completely worthless. I hope you don't get that. I love these natural proofs and these arguments. Many of us do. They can serve a useful purpose in ministry and talking about the existence of God. They can remove doubt in the believer's mind. This is where I am convinced apologetics is most powerful helping you to understand why you believe what you believe, and certainly they can shut the mouth of a non-believer. But they can only be used, let me reiterate again, repetition is a facet of learning. 
Natural proofs can instruct and encourage the believer only when they're drawn from Scripture and in alignment with Scripture. And by the way, the Apostle Paul used a lot of these arguments, but even though he was very, very highly educated, a hugely intelligent man, guess where he derived all of his arguments from, and guess where he always landed in using the Scripture, Old Testament Scripture. And that is how these arguments will work as they're designed as a valid part of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in summary... We have to close here. God exists. Scripture provides irrefutable evidence from God's own testimony that he exists. He is knowable, although not exhaustively knowable. He's revealed himself primarily through Scripture, and that is sufficient for people to know him in a personal saving relationship. And I'm going to close here. This is where I'm going to stop for this week. Remember, if anything that I've covered spurs a question or a thought, Come see JD, ask myself, ask another uh, teacher. Or if you want to save that question, email it to us. Maybe we'll do another Q&A in a few weeks when we, as we finish our systematic theology of the doctrine of God the Father. Email your questions to info at rhlawrence.org. And I'll close there and invite you to come back and join us next week. Carrie, I believe, will be continuing theology proper with God's attributes.